Okay, thank you, Mr. Mary. Appreciate it very much. And uh, appreciate all of you that are here this morning to worship with us and as we look into God's Word. And for our guests that are here, Eddie and Betty, I got that down. So they said, well, they, they rhyme, so I could remember that. Eddie and Betty. I had another couple do that. His name was Clifton and her name was Tiffany. He just said, call us Cliff and Tiff. And I said, well, that worked. I remembered him. So worked well. We're glad you're here. And uh, the crowd is small this morning. We got a few folks out that uh, we'd be small anyway if everybody was here. But that's all right. I'm glad you're here. Um, there, there was a, a Jerry mentioned about the financial reports. That's your your giving year end giving report. But there's also a, a year end financial report. You know, with all the income and outgo. Um, and amazingly, we ended up the year two hundred and forty one dollars and thirty two cents down. So that was almost I call that breaking even. That was a pretty good year considering all the extra stuff we did. And uh, I saw the benevolence offerings was only $120, but, uh, well, there's more than that here, the East Ridge Needy Child Fund and all that. But I can't imagine all that went out here in cash that didn't get, you know, didn't get in here. So it's, I know it's a lot more than that. So, nonetheless, it's a good report. If you'd like one, I think if you'd ask Joy, she'd print one off for you. Um, but that was a pr- pretty good report, and so I'm glad for that. Um, I think that's all I was wanting to remember this morning for sure. And um, told Harris, I believe that uh, we'll end the year on top of that this year. So I don't know where all that money comes from, from this little group, but I'm glad, I'm glad for it. And it's appreciate it very much. Okay, we're going to continue our study on uh, slaves and slavery in the scriptures. We started last week with talking about the uh, meaning of the word slave. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today and uh, its origins and, and what it means in the scriptures. It was a, we talked about the fact that there's a lot of background and, and you know external material that it's really important for you to understand in order to comprehend what it means to be a slave. And, of course, ultimately... The whole idea, then, will be to focus on how the scriptures refer to you and I, a believer, a Christian, as a slave of Christ, or the other term is a slave of God. And the fact that it was a common designation in the early church, that is how they viewed themselves. As part and parcel of that is the culture that surrounded the whole idea of slavery in ancient history. And so as you go back to uh, the first century church, you may remember that several hundred years before Christ and several hundred years after Christ, we had the domination of the Roman Empire and its influence upon the Middle East or what we would call the Near East, uh, taking in even beyond that to uh, Western Europe, all the way over to France and even into Britain, North Africa, and even uh, somewhat east of that and north uh, in Assyria and Armenia and those countries to the north of there. And so it had a, a wide impact. So we want to talk a little bit then just about slavery in the Roman Empire. So this is just not directly bearing on the scriptures. And yet on the other hand, we're going to find that the metaphors that Paul uses 
quite frequently draws from the Roman concept of slavery as opposed to the Greek or the Jewish idea of slavery. So we're going to hit on those just a little bit this morning. Now, the whole word for slave has military origins. It came from, of course, a Latin word, which was uh, the language of the Romans, although Greek was the dominant language of the, of the uh, Near East at that time. Uh, Latin served, and of course we get a lot of our English words directly from Latin, but it came from this word, surveyor. And the word surveyor, and I don't know if I pronounce it exactly correct, but I think I'm pretty close, means to keep. And all it had reference to really was that when, when the Roman military would conquer a neighboring people or a far away people as they were wont to travel throughout the, uh, the country there and Europe and so on, they would, of course, obtain captives. Some were slain, but some were not. And so, very simply, it just meant the ones they kept were the surveyor, or the servi, S-E-R-V-I, for the individuals. And they would then take those and sell them. And, of course, that was one way for the Roman generals to generate uh, income for the empire was to sell the slaves. Now, as we looked at it last week, too, we saw that uh, slavery was just an everyday occurrence in the Roman Empire. As many as one-third of the population were slaves. And some think that in the city of Rome itself, you know, the ratio was even higher than that. And, of course, it wasn't like slavery in the 1800s as we learned in school and as we think about it or have ideas concerning it. It was, we saw that it was quite a bit different and it was so common that you couldn't identify a slave by his speech necessarily or by race or by clothing or any other thing because they were just look like common, ordinary, everyday people. The only thing that the distinguishing characteristic that all slaves had in common was that they had an owner. They were nothing but a piece of property. And as we saw, they were considered a tool. In their writings, they refer to slaves as a piece of equipment. Uh, one writer even referred to it as uh, the relationship of a, on a ship. A rudder on a ship was a necessary part of the equipment of a ship, and it was, it was an equipment or tool. That was a, a non-personal usage. But as to a slave who might have been sitting up in the tower up above as a watchman, he was a tool also. In other words, he was just a necessary part of the equipment that one needed to operate and function a ship. It was just like a common laborer that, uh, a slave who worked in the fields. If he had a shovel or a hoe, that was a tool. And the slave was looked upon as a tool also. He was just something that the master owned. And it was something used to produce income for the household. And of course, in, in Roman culture, uh, you may remember, we, well, again, I said there's a lot of areas we have to explore. And one of those is, is the Greek word for where we get our English word economy or economos. And it has to do with the master of the house who was functioning as a, a like a company 
It was almost like the family was a business. The Latin term was called pater familia, the father of the family. And you've heard, I'm sure, that he ruled the family. Not necessarily with an, an iron hand in that sense, although that was true in many respects, especially with slaves. But he, nothing happened in the family, even with children or his wife, without the knowledge of the father. There was no giving or taking or buying or selling without the father being involved. And so it was, it was quite a concept, and it was a complicated concept in Roman culture. There was many complexities. I mean, there, like I said last week, there, were, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts surviving, Greek manuscripts, talking about slavery during, during this era and all the different kinds of legalities and things that went on. As a matter of fact, one person said um, that in any legal situation that went on, if there was any resolution to the problem, it almost always involved a slave because they were so ubiquitous. You couldn't, you know, they were just everywhere. It was just as common as night and day for slaves uh, to be considered. Of course, the English word for slave came through the Latin, which was transferred through the Romantic languages of French and Spanish and Romanian, uh, Portuguese, and all the other uh, Romance languages. And we got our term slave from, from the same, the same uh, Latin word. <clears throat> so, because slaves were nothing but property, uh, they were treated as nothing but objects when it came to legal issues. Now, on a practical level, you know, it wasn't so. They, they regarded their humanity. And there were certain things that slaves were allowed to do. You know, they had some freedoms, in other words, like they could go to the theater or to the, you know, the, you've seen the, the Roman amphitheaters where they held their races. You know, they could go to things like that. Um, even some owners would allow their slaves to have a sum of money with which he could buy and sell and trade, which, by the way, lends itself to the parables that we know that Jesus used in the scriptures. Slaves were uh, entitled or given title, as it were, to certain sums of money to use to benefit the master of the house or the householder. So it was all like a business transaction. And it was, when you say pater familia, the father of the family, I mean... They were under the master's care, but there was often no family relationship as you and I would think of it. Um, so they could be used, because they were property, they could be used you know, any way the master wanted to use them. And many, and many were owned not just by uh, an individual, but they were owned by the government. Uh, as we talked about Caesar, he had as, as many as 20,000, they estimate, slaves that were in the employ of the whole Roman Empire in various capacities. So they worked for the government, did all kinds of things like that. And yet, with all the responsibilities they had, they couldn't marry. Now, they could have a relationship. and uh, It was not called a... Um, Marriage in the sense that you and I know it, it, it and I'm going to see if I can get this uh, Latin word down. I had to practice it. 
It's a contubernium. And it literally means a tent companionship. And basically it just means they lived together. They were allowed to do that. In other words, they didn't have a legal marriage with legal rights the way a freeborn citizen did. And so they were simply allowed to live together. If they had bore children, then obviously if they had no legal marriage, then the children weren't theirs. The children were the legal property of the householder. And so they, it, was a, it was quite an interesting thing. They had no way to make a legal binding contract with anybody. They couldn't hold a public office like a freeborn citizen, uh, nor could they serve in the army. And so there were some limitations. The basic idea is, as we mentioned earlier, they were nothing looked upon as nothing but bodies. And in oftentimes in the literature, that's how they're referred to, as nothing more than a body. And we saw that very term used in Revelation 18.13, where they talked about the bodies of men. And, of course, our English translations translate that as slaves because they understand that's exactly what was meant and how the term was used. Um, A slave meant a lot to his master in the sense that it determined his not only his social status, but also it was a display of his wealth. You know, we see some instances in the scriptures where a, a centurion or a householder would be uh, coming with a, 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 an entourage of his slaves to meet Jesus, to plead with them for the healing of a child or another slave. And when they traveled like that, That was simply a public display of the prominence and wealth of that that householder and and his social status. So it meant a lot to own a lot of slaves. Now, they weren't really cheap either. Uh, Common laborers, 500 to 600 denarii. Now, that, as you remember, a denarius was a day's wage. And so it would cost a little more than a year's wage to buy one. So if you put that in today's terms, if you were... You know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollar a year job, that's what it would cost to buy a slave. And of course many owned two or three or four hundred slaves, depending on, you know, the size of the household. And then of course if they were, were, were skilled or had other other um, things to offer the householder, then of course they would cost more. One skill I thought was interesting I found out was that of a vine dresser. One who tended the vineyard was a skilled laborer. They would cost up to 2,000 denarii. I don't know what they'd do for plumbers, Charlie. Probably quite a bit because nobody wants that job. But, uh, so anyway, we saw that there were just a variety of jobs, lots of things they did. You might have a freeborn citizen who was a lawyer over here and then a slave who was a lawyer over here. The only difference was he had been purchased, captured in an army, you know, in a a war, in a fight, captured, brought back, and then sold as a slave. Um, Let me move on. Get my paper taken apart here. Um, 
I, I wrote this all out again, by the way. I don't know why I'm doing this. I can't, I can't read a message. It doesn't work. All right, so one other thing. The chief desire that topped off any slave, of course, was to gain his freedom. And that's something that we have to, we're going to look at here in just a little bit. Matter of fact, it was a big, big problem in the first century. Well, actually, throughout the whole Roman Empire, over the whole time that they were in existence, was runaway slaves. And, of course, we have an example of that in Scripture as well. Most slaves, though, gained their freedom through what we call manumission. Manumission simply means the idea of uh, setting one free. You've heard the word manumission or you may have more be more familiar with the word um, emancipate. And, of course, we know what that means. It means to set free. It comes from a, a, another Latin word, manus, the hand, and then another word that means to set loose. And so it's like, you know, when you put your hand on someone, you gave them permission to be free, turned them loose. And, of course, owners did that very, very frequently, more often than you would probably imagine. Um, the goal, of course, was to try to be free by the time you were around age 30 or so. Life expectancies were not very long, and so you wanted to get your freedom as early as you could. But that was the whole purpose behind it, was emancipation, to be set free or manumitted, uh, to take one's hand off of that one and give them their freedom. And, of course, when they gave them their freedom, up. And a lot of times, you know, it's like I said, it's a complicated thing, complex. A lot of slaves were able to gain uh, enough money that they could buy their own freedom. And it was, it was possible for them to do that. Now, under Jewish slavery, a whole different concept, a whole different idea. Slavery was just as virtually as common with a few distinctions. One of those was that the Jews uh, did not depend on, in, in, in the land of Israel, they did not depend on slavery for their, their economy to function. In other words, they tended to use slaves as domestic help primarily. They didn't use them like the Romans did for all these other functions to keep the economy going. So it wasn't, there was a difference there. Now, we're going to look up several scriptures now, and this is where you have to go to work because we're going to look at some of the things that God laid out for uh, Israel in the conduct of their slaves and what set them apart from the Gentile nations around them. And, and one of the key elements that you're going to see is their lack of harshness in the way they treated their slaves. That was one of the things that God set forth as a principle for them to function by. And it's going to be really important that we understand why God did that. Okay. Leviticus chapter 25. And we're, of course, knowing what I said, you probably turn to the Pentateuch right away because you know that a lot of this is going to come from Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, Deuteronomy. This is where we're going to spend the greatest portion of our time today. And then once we get through with all that, hopefully I'll be able to make a point about it. And 
learn something about why this is such an important thing and why I'm going to spend time on talking about being a slave. In Leviticus 25, (coughs) if you'll turn there, And if you look at verse 45, 44, notice that he says there, that's Leviticus 25, verse 44, and just keep kind of keep your finger in here, and we'll be back and forth in Leviticus and so on. He says, both thy bondmen. Now, I'm just going to read this the way it should be translated, Okay. He says, both thy slaves, your male slaves and your female slaves, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of them shall ye buy male slaves and female slaves. Moreover, of the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them shall ye buy and of their families that are with you, which they begat in your land, and they shall be your possession. In other words, your property. Verse 46, and ye shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your slaves forever. But over your brethren, the children of Israel, ye shall not rule over another with rigor. And so we find that um, a, a foreign person who was taken as a slave was treated as property, just as we saw with the Romans and the Greeks. But if you'll look at the passage right above that, beginning with verse 35, notice what he says concerning Israelites who were taken as slaves. He says, And if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, ooh, that's some of us, and I feel, we feel like we're falling into decay here. And then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. In other words, you don't make a profit off of your brother. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if thy brother that dwells by thee be waxen poor and be sold unto thee, that is, sold as a slave, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a slave. But, notice what he says, as an hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with thee and shall serve thee unto the year of Jubilee. So they were to serve as a hired hand, not as a slave. And so there was a distinction made between the two. Now, if you'll look at uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 10, I want us to look at some of the things that God laid out for observances on the part of Israel (coughs) regarding (coughs) any slaves that they might have. In verse 10, of course, you have the Ten Commandments here. Regarding the Sabbath, in verse 10, he says, The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, your male slaves, 
nor your maidservant, your female slaves, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. In other words, it didn't matter who they were. If they were in the land of Israel, they were to observe the Sabbath. That wasn't just for the Israelites. If they were under the uh, authority or the administration of Israel or a family of Israel, then they were to observe the Sabbath. If you'll just turn uh, back a few pages to chapter 12 of Exodus. <clears throat> you'll notice he says in verse 42, he says there, it is a, uh, concerning, this is the Passover, of course. He says, it is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is the, that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel and their generations. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. Now, a foreigner, which would include any foreign slaves, were not to eat. But they observed other religious feasts. Turn to Deuteronomy 16. And look at verses 11, and we'll look at verse 14, verses 11 and 14. Notice here in Moses' reiteration of the commandments that God had given to the new generation that was about to go into the land of Canaan. He said in verse 11, Thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son, and thy daughter, and thy male slaves and thy female slaves and the Levite that is within thy gates and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. And thou shalt, in verse 14, thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy male slaves and female slaves and the Levite, the stranger and fatherless and the widow that are within thy gates. So they were to observe the feast also along with the other Israelites. Back in Exodus chapter 21 now, after six years, you might remember, they were to be released. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 2, 3, and 4, <clears throat> this is regarding a, a Hebrew servant. He says, if you buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. Now, you see, that's a distinction between Jewish slavery and Roman slavery. In Roman slavery, if the husband bought his freedom, then that was the only one that was set free. His wife and his children stayed with the original household. But under God's rule and economy, if they were married and they had children, they went with them after this, in the seventh year. Verse 4 says, If his master have given him a wife and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. So if they came in married, they went out married. If he came in single and the master of the house gave him a wife, then he goes out free and the wife stays. And again, 
through all of this, you catch the idea of they were property owned like a piece of equipment, a body. She shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. Or in verses five and six, we saw, we, or we see they could stay if they so desired. He says, and if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or under the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him forever. And of course, that was not like branding to show ownership. It was rather a declaration on the part of the slave that he said, I have chosen to remain with my master. Now also, a couple other things here yet. Look at verse, uh, verses 26 and 27 of the same chapter. If a slave was permanently injured, notice what he says. If a man smite the eye of his slave or the eye of his female slave, that it perish... He shall let him go free for his eye's sake. And if he smite out his uh, male slave's tooth or his female slave's tooth, he shall let him go free for his tooth's sake. Now again, you see the difference. Under Rome, if a, mas- if, if, you know, if a master accidentally poked the eye out of his slave, it's too bad. <laughs> he was still owned by the slave or by the householder, but under the Jewish economy, he was to go free for his tooth's sake. So there was a difference. Um, We already saw that they had to be treated as paid workers. Uh, Leviticus 25. In Leviticus 25, we see another opportunity for freedom, and that was in the year of Jubilee. And, of course, I think we're all familiar with that one. In chapter 25, verse 54 of Leviticus, he says there, And if he be not redeemed in these years, then he shall go out in the year of Jubilee, both he and his children with him. So if it was only two or three years, they didn't have to wait the full six years. If it was the year of Jubilee, they were to go free. A couple other things here. Foreign slaves. How did they treat foreign slaves who were running away from their master? We said that was a common, a common occurrence. Look at Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 15. <laughs> And it's interesting there. He says, Thou shalt not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master unto thee. He shall dwell with thee even among you in that place which he shall choose in one of thy gates, which would be the same thing as saying in one of your cities, your gated cities, where where it liketh him best, wherever he wanted to go. Thou shalt not oppress him. 
Now, that was a non-Israelite slave. So if you had a foreign slave who had, you know, was being treated unjustly or inhumanely and he escaped from his master and he came to Israel, then Israel was to harbor him and keep him there. He wasn't to send him back to his master. And, of course, that was a distinction again between Israel and the Gentile countries around them because if they were caught, you know, they were sent back with knowing the severity of the punishment that they would receive. And then under Jewish culture, there was, there was no branding, no marks of any kind put upon a person to show their ownership. Now, I don't know that there was so much marks put on bodies by the Gentile nations, but they did do things like put a, hang a tag around them, as it were. You know, just like companies today put identity tags on a person and you got to wear it the whole time you're working there. Well, they would put a tablet or a thing around their neck to show that they were owned by some certain individual. Now, twice in Leviticus 25, let's look, turn back there, Leviticus 25, and twice there, we've looked at these passages, I just didn't focus on them at the time. God tells them there not to rule over their slaves, the King James says, with rigor. Look at verse 43, we read this verse. He says, thou shalt not rule over him, your slave, with rigor, that is with severity or ruthlessness. He says, but shalt fear thy God. And then in verse 46, he says it again at the end of the verse. He says, but over your brethren, the children of Israel, ye shall not rule over one another with rigor. So it didn't matter if you were a foreign slave or if you were a Hebrew slave. You were to be, to be treated humanely. And boy, did that ever set them apart from the Gentile nations around them because they didn't treat their slaves necessarily in a very humane manner. As a matter of fact, they could be quite brutal and the owner actually had the authority to commit them to death if they were not performing up to standards or if they were disobedient or whatever. So they were to, to, to be humane. Now, why? Where did that principle come from? Look, keep your finger right here because we're going to come back to this chapter. But go over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And uh, verse 15. And notice there he says, and remember that you, that thou wast a slave in the land of Egypt. And that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. And then if you'll turn over to chapter 15 of Deuteronomy... And he simply repeats the same thing again. He says, And thou shalt remember that thou wast a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore, I command thee this thing today. And, of course, that's another whole thing to explore was the matter of redemption and the redeeming of a slave. But 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, cha- I'm sorry. Chapter 15, verse 15. <laughs> okay, now back to Leviticus, chapter 25. Verse 55 says, For unto me the children of Israel are slaves. They are my slaves whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, you know, we often, when we think about God setting the Israelites free, as it were, from slavery in Egypt, and he brought them out into the wilderness to send them up to the land of Canaan and so on, (coughs) to take possession of the land that he had promised. And we tend to stop there because we think of that as being a sort of freedom. They were turned loose from slavery in Egypt. But in actuality, they were, there was an actual slave market transaction, as it were, took place. God redeemed them, he said, from Egypt. He purchased them, and now he owned them, and they were to be his slaves. Consequently, they had no more rights than any other slave under the Jewish economy. As humane as it was, they were still slaves, and they were to be viewed as slaves. And the the godly Hebrew who sought to obey the Lord viewed himself as a slave of God. And, of course, as we come to the New Testament, as we looked at last week, we saw repeatedly how the New Testament believers and the apostles viewed themselves as either slaves of God or slaves of Jesus Christ. Ownership. And once we realize the concept of ownership and the giving up and of our rights of freedom, that we gain a whole another new avenue of freedom that we never knew, that we can only experience when we realize who owns us. I want to end this with a little quotation I came across from a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp is one of the very, very earliest of the early church fathers. As a matter of fact, um, Irenaeus, who was another one of the early church fathers, said in his writings that Polycarp had been a disciple of the Apostle John. So he was very early. Uh, They establish his dates of of being born around 69 A.D., which was, that's pretty close, you know, to the time the Apostle Paul died. He was born. John, of course, lived to about A.D. 95. So he would have been a relatively young man as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he died somewhere around 155 A.D. or something like that. We have one letter in existence that he wrote. It was, and it's called, interestingly enough, the letter to the Philippians or the church at Philippi. Now, by the way, he became a pastor. He was the bishop of the church at Smyrna, which we're very familiar with there in the book of Revelation. As pastor of that church, he wrote a letter to a fellow church, a sister church, as it were, the church at Philippi. Maybe I'll write Tracy a letter. Well, that'd be fun to see what he'd say about that. Okay. Here, but here's what he said. 
and of course, all in the context about being a slave of Jesus Christ. He said, for you know that you have been saved by a gracious gift, not from works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, he said, bind up your loose robes and serve as God's slaves in reverential fear and truth. Bind up your loose robes. Well, any, now that's, that's talking about a farm laboring slave there. A slave who would go out to work in the fields and he would bind up that loose robe while he was working out in the wheat field or the, in the vineyard or wherever he might be. He says, abandoning futile reasoning and the error that deceives many and believing in the one who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him glory and a throne at his right hand. This is what he's telling the church at Philippi. He says, everything in heaven and on earth is subject to him. Everything that breathes will serve him. He is coming as a judge of the living and the dead. And God will hold those who disobey him accountable for his blood. And of course, he's just passing on, in essence, a distillation of New Testament truth regarding what the Lord Jesus Christ came to accomplish and how he brought us to the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. Nothing on our part. We didn't just one day decide and choose that we would be followers of Jesus Christ, but he, through his spirit, woos us to himself. And so that means that, as I've said in the past, there ought to be something within our past that we can look back to that says, yes, I have. There was a, a time when I know I gave my life to Christ. I devoted myself to him. And I have determined that I am going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To be a follower of Jesus Christ then and becoming a slave of his means that we have relegated our life to the authority of the scriptures and all that the New Testament teaches us regarding the life, the lifestyle, as it were, of a Christian, one who's a disciple. This really isn't a part of my message, but I've been amazed as I just have, you know, been reading through the scriptures what, what the Bible has to say for those who are obedient servants of the Lord regarding the eating of rich food. That amazes me. And, and I like rich food. <laughs> I like that good stuff. But the whole picture I get, every time I look at anything like that, the scriptures paint for us a simplified lifestyle for the devoted Christian. No opulence, no ostentatiousness, no extravagance, just a level, steady, moderate life. I got invited, and I didn't pay for it. Ever, anybody ever been to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse? I went, but I didn't have to pay for it. Man, you talk about a high living steak there. Oh, that was good. That was good stuff. 
But I don't think I could walk in there and buy one myself. I really don't think I could do that. Now, I might have at one time. I'm a slave. Somebody else owns me. I love those words. Jesus said, for you're not your own. You were bought with a price. When God said he owned the Israelites and they were his slaves, they were duty bound to walk in obedience to the master's wishes. As slaves of Jesus Christ, we have the same obligation. We are duty bound. And just as those and boy, this is, I hope you understand we're building up because as we begin to explore the Gospels and the richness of those parables, the slave parables, to understand that Jesus drew clearly off the culture of the day. That you know, when the master came back, after having gone off to the far country, there was an accountability. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I may be sharing with you an account that came out of a one of those papyri or manuscripts I told you about, about an actual secular case, as it were, where that actually happened. And the master came back to call his servant, his slave, whom he had entrusted with a portion of his funds and then called him to account for it. And, of course, the reason it became in the papyri was he wasn't able to give full account Hence, there was a legal case against him and da-da-da-da. So the application, I hope we see, is very clear to you and I that our master has gone to a far country, and he's coming back. And just as Polycarp said, he's coming as a judge of the living and the dead, and God will hold those who disobey him accountable for his blood. It was with a great price that he purchased us. We owe him our all. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that we do know who our master is. We know who owns us. And I pray, Father, that through these things you would touch us in the very depths of our heart, that our soul would be stirred and moved, not only to just worship you, but to walk in obedience. Lord, I pray that in this complex culture and society in which we live and the things that are going on around us, I pray that, God, that you would help us to know, give us the wisdom, the discernment as to how to walk in this day and age, to walk in a way that is pleasing to you and honors our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us strength to do so and let us have the resolve in our hearts to do what we know we need to do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.